I'm not sure if you remember this, but in 2012, a monkey dressed in a shearling coat roamed around an IKEA in Canada. We know about this monkey and the IKEA because there was a lot of memorable CCTV footage and pictures of the event. If you're anything like me, you found yourself on the internet in awe because monkeys aren't supposed to be in IKEA. A pigeon, maybe, that could have flown in. There are plenty of those. But monkeys aren't native to Canada. They don't just wander the street in fashionable statement coats. If we didn't have the footage of this event, would we believe it? I'm not so sure we would. We may spread it around like a funny story, but would we really, actually believe it? What happens when something strange and extraordinary happens, but no one can prove it? What happens when we don't have documented evidence of the monkey? This is the situation one northern town finds itself in. Well, not exactly the same as there isn't an Ikea there, but according to some, there was a monkey. I'm Caitlin Badger, and this is Northern, history and stories from the north of England. First, the story. Who hung the monkey? Hartlepool is a small town that sits on the North Sea in County Durham. The town had a quick spurt of growth around the 1830s after the introduction of the railway. The railways made it viable for coal to be brought inland from the collieries nearby to the coast in Hartlepool. From there, it could be shipped directly down to London. The railway and the harbor there relied on each other in this period. And it wasn't just Hartlepool where this was happening. There were other northern towns situated on the coast. And with so much of the coal mining for the country happening there, it made sense for people to capitalize on this opportunity. While other towns, and some of them bigger towns, were doing the same thing, Hartlepool edged out the competition by keeping their port charges lower than the surrounding towns. And on top of that, Hartlepool docks were perfectly situated for ships to enter the port, load up, and leave all on the same tide, making it not only cheaper, but quicker for ships to hurry back down to London with the fuel the city depended on. With London hungry for more coal, it's no wonder that Hartlepool thrived and grew in the 19th century. It was only a few decades before the Hartlepool Railway took off in the 1830s that according to a Mr. James Harrison, his grandfather, Thomas Hood, witnessed a bizarre occurrence. Mr. Harrison wrote about it in the Northern Daily Mail in 1944. According to his grandfather, on a stormy night in the early 1800s, a ship off the coast managed to get itself into trouble and crashed into the sea. But it wasn't a ship meant to be in Hartlepool. Instead, it was a French ship. And as Britain was at war with Napoleon, the people were not happy to see it there. Thomas Hood and the people of Hartlepool watched the shipwreck. And when the wreckage washed ashore, Thomas was there to check it out. 
It was a common occurrence for people of the coastal villages and towns to scour the wreckage of a shipwreck. As long as no one was left alive, they could take what they needed. Any supplies, any liquor, anything at all. But on this occasion, it wasn't so straightforward. Someone foreign-looking washed ashore. Someone or something Thomas and his friends couldn't quite understand. It, or he, certainly didn't speak the language. They knew he was alive, and they knew he was foreign, and they knew he was wearing a French uniform. So logically, they decided he must be a French spy. They tied him to a mast, stuck into the sand, and hung him on the beach. Though the people of Hartlepool knew the uniform meant this man was an enemy, there was a slight confusion. They had never actually seen this kind of person. They had never seen a French person. Or what it actually turned out to be, according to Thomas Hood's first-hand account, a monkey. Over the past month, when I've asked people about the monkey hangers, pretty much everyone recounts a version of this story, or something very similar to this. But sometimes it has a more sinister tone. A few people have remarked to me that the monkey was actually a young boy, a powder monkey. Powder monkeys were young boys employed on the ships to run the powder to the cannons. It was a dangerous job running explosive materials around a moving ship. But the young boys were quick and nimble. Another dark take on the tale has to do with the laws around looting and shipwrecks. Shipwrecks in the early 1800s weren't exactly uncommon. And as I said before, coastal communities often searched through the wreckage for things they could take. However, there was a law they had to follow, the salvage law. It was written to say that you could only take from the wreckage if there was no living thing alive left on the ship. A monkey, while a gray area maybe, was a living thing. So maybe the people found it easier to hang him up than to leave behind perfectly good wreckage. Although I've still not figured out why a French ship would have a monkey on it in the first place. And even more so, why would they put it in a tiny uniform? But then again, in 2012, someone put a monkey in a shearling coat, so who knows? In 1944, when James Harrison retold what he claimed was a first-hand account passed down from his grandfather, Hartlepool was once again a vulnerable coastal town in a time of war. But this time, the ships were made of steel and some flew in the sky. It's hard to ignore the parallels, the subtle undertones of xenophobia and fear that often grips communities and countries during times of war. Perhaps the story written in the paper in 1944 was affected by that fear. But 1944 wasn't the first mention of this monkey. In fact, it was already a pretty popular story by this point. The fisherman hung the monkey Looking for more information on how this story got popularized, 
I came across someone called Ned Corvin. I thought it best to talk to someone who really knew what this Ned Corvin was all about. Uh, my name's Dave Harker. I'm 71, and I was born in Gisborough, in the North Riding of Yorkshire, as it used to be. Dave Harker is the author of Cat Gut Jim, Ned Corvin's Life and Times. Okay, um, he had three surnames. His parents were called Corvin, and they were born in Ireland. We're thinking the north of Ireland, but we're not sure because British artillery bombed all their records in 1916 in Dublin. Ned was born to Irish immigrants in Liverpool around 1830, and not long after, the family moved to Newcastle. And they moved to, the family moved to a place called Coburg Stairs, which is in the poorest uh, parish of Newcastle. And it was like a hill, top of the hill, inside the old town walls, which where the poor Irish used to live. When Ned was 14, his father, who had worked as a stonemason and a bricklayer, passed away. And that's the year when Ned was 14, so he becomes a sailmaker, but he hates it. He's a big fan of a showman called Billy Purvis. And the only letter we have of Ned's in his own handwriting says he ran away from home with the strolling players. And he writes songs, and he sings songs. And eventually, by about 1849, that's where we're up to now, he uh, sings in concerts and places of amusement. That's what he calls them. <laughs> and he writes radical songs. He writes a, He's always in favor of working people, working men and women, isn't it? All of his songs, right, right, right the way through his, his life. And one of the earliest is called The Queen's Second Visit. This is where she stops for 20 minutes in Newcastle to open the high-level railway bridge and then disappears as fast as she can. And Ned writes rather a critical, uh, almost Republican song about it, to be honest. Mm. And gradually, 1853, he gets his big break. There's a huge equestrian circus-type building, we call it now, next to the central station, which had recently been opened. And it's like a wooden teepee. There's no other way of describing it. And it was huge. It held 2,800 people. And Ned wrote a series of songs for there, which actually almost bang up to date. One was criticizing the town council for basically uh, underhand dealings. And another one was about somebody who joined the local militia, which was used to break strikes. And it went down a storm, an absolute storm. And so he becomes, he leaves, he leaves Billy's show and he becomes Ned Corvan. So in 1855, now a performer in his own right, Ned writes, publishes, and performs his song, The Fisherman Hung the Monkey O in Hartlepool. And this is thought to be the first time that the monkey legend was written down. Nobody, I, I mean, I've talked to the guy who used to be head of history at uh, a big comprehensive school in Hartlepool for 30 years, and he doesn't know an earlier version of that tale than Ned's song. We both think it was actually, there may have been a rumor or a story or something of the kind floating about, but it, was, it hadn't been written down, and he was off to the big, a big city after that. He had a gig at Wilton's, which is a very, very infamous concert hall in London. It's still there, in fact, the building. And he probably thought he wasn't coming back, so he could write this song and get away with it. There are all kinds of myths associated with that. People say he was chased out of town. There's no evidence for that at all. 
the song, like Ned, was a bit of a hit. Its popularity was even enough in the region for it to be used in marketing campaigns. In the 1892 24th of October edition of the Hartlepool Northern Daily Mail, a single ad wrote, If the monkey had not been hung, a song of praise it would have sung, of Benison's hand-cut trousers. That's the entire ad, with Benison's written in all caps. So between 1855 and 1892, the story became popular enough for it to be referenced in a single-line advertisement in the area. For me, the next natural question to ask is, how did Ned come up with the song? One theory is that the story originally comes from a shipwreck off the coast some 300 miles north of Hartlepool in Aberdeenshire, Scotland. The story is remarkably close to the Hartlepool legend. There's a shipwreck off the coast, it's a French ship, a monkey is found, and the people kill it in order to take salvage from the ship. Really, the only difference is that it's said to have taken place in Scotland in 1772, around 20 years before the Napoleonic Wars, when Hartlepool had its monkey washed ashore, according to the newspaper article. So the stories are close. But if it's true that Ned was influenced by it, how did he get a hold of it? A traditional Scottish song called The Bottomers Hung the Monkey-O was written about the incident. And as one historian puts it, it may have worked its way down the coast until it reached the ears of our Tyneside singer, Ned. Tunes were often taken from other songs, and the same is the case with these. The tunes are pretty much the same. But there are some who think that Ned not only borrowed the tune, but the idea and many of the lyrics from the Scottish version. But Mr. Harker questions this. Yeah, well, that story started circulating in 1970 or 1970s, and they claimed it. And there's no evidence for it. Regardless of whether Ned borrowed elements of the song, he may have sensed an opportunity when he performed it in Hartlepool. Hartlepool's split. Hartlepool's boom in the 1830s brought around a lot of positive changes. It flooded in more money and grew the economy of the town. However, it wasn't without its challenges. Hartlepool was originally built up around the similarly named Hartlepool Abbey in the 7th century. And with its prime location, it then grew into a small fishing village. By the 1830s, it was a small town. And like many small coastal towns, it was primarily made up of families who relied on fishing as their way of life, and had so for generations. When the rail brought coal to the port of Hartlepool, it changed the economy of the town. No longer was fishing the top priority of the port, but the port also didn't have enough room for all of the trade coming in. If you imagine the letter C, Hartlepool was situated at the top of that sea, the outer edge of the land, or the headland, as it's sometimes called. Hartlepool couldn't keep up with the demand of ships wanting to come in, but there was more money to be made. So the Hartlepool Dock and Railway Company bought the land just south of Hartlepool, slightly towards the center of that letter C, if you can imagine it, and they built another port, 
At this time, railways didn't just own their cars, they owned the tracks. So companies controlled where goods could go in the country. There was a lot of rivalry between railway companies and owners of the harbors. Without going into all of that, in about 1847, West Hartlepool, this new bit of land became a town with its own harbor and its own railway. West Hartlepool was ruled economically by the West Hartlepool Harbor and Railway Company. Where Hartlepool had been built up around a religious house in the 7th century, West Hartlepool was being built around coal and ships. It was all about the trade. And the trades came flooding in. Shipbuilding, rope making, sawmills, ironworks, canvas factories. By the time Ned sang the infamous song in 1855 in Hartlepool, West Hartlepool had already that year created its first steamship made of iron. With a second Hartlepool essentially established so close that today both sides are known together as Hartlepool, some rivalries and disagreements began. The people of old Hartlepool had long had grievances with the railways and harbor companies that were making it harder and harder for them to fish in areas that had traditionally been theirs. So when Ned found himself with a song that poked a bit of fun at one side of Hartlepool, perhaps he knew it would be a hit. After all, he was a man that kept up with the thoughts of the people. There was a big carry-on between them, and he, presumably he got wind of that, and uh, he sang it in the old Hartlepool, though, which is interesting. <laughs> and he got away with it. He was unscathed. Music is often a political act. It's expressive of things that challenge the status quo, or it pokes fun at our own misaligned values or nonsensical beliefs. Ned, while known as comical, was also very socially active. And he gets involved in a seaman's strike. And he wrote two songs in support of the seaman's strike. And he put his name to them, which was a very dangerous thing to do for anybody at that day and age, yeah. given all the pasturage that ruled, ruled the place by well-off people. And presumably they went down well. He's the first one to do it full-time in the northeast of England. And in terms of, I mean, I don't know of anybody equivalent to him anywhere else in the British Isles at that, at that date. Somebody who sings songs professionally, who writes them himself. He nicks the tunes, of course. They all nick tunes. Mm-hmm. Um, and has a, basically a working-class base. That's what he's got. Right across the northeast. The song moves forward. Eighty years later, in 1938, a writer for the Yorkshire Post stated that the time-honored way of testing Hartlepool's toughness is to stand in any public place and cry, who hanged the monkey? The legend persevered long after Ned. Perhaps because it hit the people of Hartlepool at just the right time to really resonate. Fast forward another 80 years, and today it's a town full of pride over the uniting story of hanging a monkey. The legend is so unifying that Hartlepool even elected its first mayor in 2002 that was dressed as a monkey. 
All right, maybe it's an odd story to find uniting, but it's pretty northern to me to take a story that was originally meant to be offensive to some and take ownership of it, to change the narrative, to make it their own. When someone first mentioned the Hartlepool monkey hanger story to me, it sounded like too absurd of a story to be true. It certainly didn't sound real, but I was interested in investigating it. As I've told friends the story I'm researching for, those who knew about it have all had a different version to tell me. Each version of a local legend feels like the truth to someone. No matter what led to the monkey hanging, everyone's pretty sure at the end of the day, it happened. And who am I to say that it didn't? After all, if a monkey can roam around an Ikea in a shearling coat, why can't one roam around Hartlepool in a French uniform? Okay, I should confirm that we cannot confirm that this happened historically. There is no evidence of a shipwreck happening off the coast in that time period. Just wanted to clear that up. But I still like the idea of a monkey in a French uniform. A very special thanks for this episode goes out to Dave Harker, who kindly spared over an hour to tell me all about the amazing Ned Corvin. It was awesome. Special thanks also go out to Jordan Highland and Callum Badger for their feedback. If you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to see more, check me out on Twitter and Instagram at Northern Podcast. Finally, it would mean so much to me if you do like the show, if you'd leave it a review on iTunes. Thank you so much for listening as always, and I will see you in the next one. 